Hello, and welcome to the Sunday Sermon Cast from Bethel Evangelical Free Church on Washington Island, Wisconsin. I'm Rick Smith, and I've been here at Bethel since 2016, enjoying this great church on this spectacular place off the northern tip of Door County, Wisconsin. This message comes from our Sunday morning service here on the island, and it's geared towards discovering what the Bible has to say to us in our everyday lives. So, God's blessing on you, and thanks for joining with us wherever you are today. We are going to be jumping into the Gospel of Matthew. We'll be beginning uh, in chapter 2. We're going to be talking about the wise men today. So if you would turn with your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. And uh, here is the word of the living and true God. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, And they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, and frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Here ends our reading. So, who are the Magi? This is often a fun little event that we see every time we set up the manger scene. Out in front of our houses, you'll have the baby, and you'll have Mary and Joseph, and you'll have the shepherds. But then we have the, these wise men, as we call them. We have three individuals that stand there, and they're wearing all kinds of different outfits, depending on where you get your set from. And some of them have, you know, shepherd staffs, or some of them are on camels. It just depends on where you buy it. Well, unfortunately, what we know from history is that there was more than three, so that's inaccurate. We lost three. They, they weren't kings, so we don't have we three kings. That's, that's not accurate. They weren't on camels. They would have rode horses, so that's also gone. <laughs> but they did bring gifts to Christ, so that is accurate. So what we know from history, Herodotus writes to us about the Persian Empire that the Magi would have come from us. And I want to cite the source to tell us a little bit about the Magi and who they were. Magi is an old Persian word, magos, which refers to a certain very wise, hereditary, priestly tribe of people who came from the Medes. This term is also translated as megastanes, from which we get our term magistrates. The Magi were so powerful that historians tell us that no Persian was ever able to become king except under two conditions. He had to master the scientific and religious discipline of the Magi, and he had to be approved of and crowned by the Magi. In effect, they controlled who could be king within the Mesopotamian region. 
having through the years risen to a place of great prominence in the kings, kingdoms of Babylon, Media, and Persia, they served as advisors to the rulers. And so the term became synonymous in many ways with being wise men. And so they were advisors. These were diplomats. If you were to be part of the Magi court, you would be considered what we would have as our Senate tied in with our justice system or our judges. They would have gone together. They, they would rear kings, they would develop kings, and then they would crown kings. So these were very important individuals, very learned. It was a hereditary priesthood. So in order to become part of the Magi, you had to be born into the Magi. It was very similar to the Levitical line. You had to be of Levi in order to be a Levitical priest. And so that was the same thing here with the Magi. They believed in one God, which was similar. However, they also were involved in astrology and different forms of religion that had taken kind of this culminating effect. So they did get along with Jews in that they believed that there was one God. It's just what that looked like was different. So verse 1, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, the wise men came from the east, saying, who, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. So a couple things come out to us immediately right away is where is he who has been born king of the Jews? That's how they title him. That's their annunciation. We've come for the king. Right? And so where would they have gotten this? This word magos, if we go back in the Bible, we find this scripture in the book of Daniel is where this first shows up. Underneath Nebuchadnezzar, he had his own troop of wise men or magos or magi. And as you recall, when, they, when the Israelites went into captivity into Babylon, there was a certain prophet there that existed by the name of Daniel. And he was prime minister for 65 years in Babylon and into Persia. When Cyrus came, it was Daniel who brought the scripture down, pointed to Isaiah and said, it's about time you got here. We've been waiting for you. You know, you're supposed to set us free now. And, and Cyrus was so impressed by all this, he let the people go. But many did not actually go. A lot of the Jews stayed behind, and with Daniel, uh, they intermarried. They would stay in Babylon, which would then be conquered by Persia at that time. And so the Magi had Daniel as their chief. We discover that in Daniel uh, chapter 248. He would, he would be their chief executive or their go-to guy in Persia as well as in Babylon previously. And so Daniel received apocalyptic revelation from God. He was a prophet of God, and so he would have known the timing of the Messiah. If you've ever had a chance to study the book of Daniel, they have what's called the 70th week prophecy, or the 70 week prophecy. It's in Daniel chapter 9. It covers, by Daniel from God, it covers the timing of the Messiah to the day. So if you number the weeks, it will take you from when Israel was sent back to rebuild their wall, and it will bring you exactly to the day of Christ coming into Jerusalem on the donkey. It puts it right to the day. If there is ever a prophecy to galvanize your Christianity and strengthen your faith, study the 70-week prophecy. It is intense. It does take some work. But that will be a, a very uh, fruitful endeavor if you ever take it up. And uh, so the, the Magi had this. They had this information. Daniel would have been able to pass this down to them. They would have known this time was coming. We know from historians that the whole world in the Roman Empire and beyond was having visions and dreams and people are coming forward saying there is somebody coming out of Judea who's going to rule the world. 
They knew there was an individual coming. They didn't know the whens and hows and what it looked like, but they knew it was coming. The world was on its edge waiting for Christ. This was the time. And so here come the Magi. They see his star. It's specific. It's his star. This isn't just some random star that they chose and said, this is, this is Christ's star. They, this would have been a manifestation. There are scholars that say that there could have been a comet, that it could have been maybe, you know, some star that exploded in the sky, and then that's what they say. They were like, hey, there it is. That's the big event. But we have no historical rendition of this. We have nothing to, to go back to and say what it was. So the assumption is, by most biblical scholars, is that this was a manifestation of God's glory. That he signaled them in the east because it says, we saw it in the east and then we came. The signal goes off. They say, hey, it's happened. This is real. This is, this is actually coming to pass, just as Daniel said. And they get up on their horses and they take off. And they come flying to Jerusalem. And so Herod... They get there and they say, king of the Jews. And the, the key word we need to tie in here is that he's born king of the Jews. There was no pedigree necessary here in developing him. He was born king. They knew who he was. They knew what he was set to do. They understood his purpose. And they were coming to fall down and worship, as what it would say. However, we have Herod, <laughs> troubled. That word also means terrified, is where you can, you can strike that. Now at this time, Herod, we need to talk a little bit about Herod. We need to understand who he is, because he's, he's an important figure in all of this. Herod had come to power in 40 BC. He came in as a, as a conqueror. He came in as, as, as a general in the Roman army. He was half Jew, half Idiomean. So the Jews despised him because he wasn't actually a Jew ruling over them, and Rome loved him because he was able to keep peace at any cost. He was effective, he was an orator, he was a builder, he would set up Caesarea, he would rebuild Titan and, Cy and um, Siren, he would, he would build cities, and he also went into rebuilding the temple. He did a lot of good things when he first came to power. There was a famine that hit the land, and it's written that Herod actually would melt down some of his own gold to pay for food for his people. And so he was, as he started, Good, but then as he progressed in his reign, he became a tyrant. He would murder three of his sons, his son-in-law, and he would also execute two of his wives in this battle for power that he was having. Nobody, anybody that was considered a threat to him had to be immediately executed. He was not going to lose what he believed he had worked so hard to achieve. So the big thing that I like to say about Herod, it's, it's not always known, but when Herod died... As he, as he goes to Jericho, he, he's on his deathbed, and as, as he's about to pass, he has all the prominent people in Israel reined up together, and he locks them in jail on false charges. He brings them in, and he puts them all in prison, and he brings together the Roman soldiers, and he says, when I breathe my last, I want you to execute all of them. He's like, that way there will be tears in Israel for my death, because he believed that nobody would cry for him. That's our Herod. That's the guy that we're coming up against. He is terrified, he is fearful, he is anxious, and he's a, he's a psychopath. <laughs> he, is, he, is, he is out there. This guy is completely unpredictable. And so Herod, when it says he was troubled, it's because he finally met a force that he couldn't conflict with. He couldn't go to battle with the Magi. This was the powerful leadership of the Persian army, and he was not 
to ruffle their feathers because that would mean war in Israel. And so he comes in and he's troubled and Jerusalem with him. Well, Jerusalem's not troubled that these guys have showed up. They're not afraid of the Magi. They're, they're terrified of Herod. They're nervous what he's going to do. Because Herod, they, they just said, born king of the Jews, Herod has lost his throne. This is a declaration to Herod. You are no longer king. There is one who is born who belongs where you are. And we've come to crown him. And Herod is now looking at the end of his career in an instant. And so Jerusalem itself is afraid. Herod then makes, a, makes it a move. He wants to answer them, assembling the chief priests. He brings them together. This would have been a forced, a forced congregation because they did not like him. He had placed an eagle on top of their temple as he's rebuilding it, and they did not like that pagan symbol on top of their temple. The Sanhedrin was vehemently against him, and so he would force things by penalty of death if they didn't comply. So here they come together, and they're going to tell him exactly what they know. The, he says, where is the Messiah to be born? They say in Bethlehem. It's not even, it wouldn't have even been an issue for them. They would have known off the top of their head. They taught this. They had all of the prophecies. They had all of the books. It just came right out. They knew exactly where the Messiah was to be born. And so, but Herod is the only one that has no clue. He didn't see no star. He's just got this wise man showing up saying, hey, we're, we're coming in and we're going to worship this guy and there's nothing you're going to do. And so Herod brings them together. He gets his, he gets his answer which, to me, it says a lot about the Jewish leadership at this time. They're, they're stuck between a rock and a hard place, but yet they don't choose Christ. Because look what happens here. And he sent them to Bethlehem. So Herod summons... Oh, well, i got to back up a little bit here. Uh, so Herod summons the wise men. He gets the time of the star. He brings, sends the wise men out to Israel. But who doesn't attend? Who doesn't go? It's Israel. Their leadership stays behind. They get the prophecy. The wise men are there. They're supposed to go. This is supposed to be joyful, not just for the wise men, not just an exciting event for the world as a whole, but it was supposed to be the coming of their Messiah. Here he was, and they're completely indifferent. They're completely unaffected by this at all. They've been woken up here by this. They come in. They give the prophecy. They say, hey, he's supposed to be in Bethlehem. The, the procession goes on. This would have been pomp and circumstance. There's no way there was just three. There would have been an entourage of people bringing gifts. There would have been cooks and slaves and manservants and men, all that stuff. They would have come with everything into Jerusalem. And all of the Jewish leadership would have been privy to this. They all would have seen this. And none of them decided to investigate the truth of this. They all sat back and said, well, it should be in Bethlehem. That's what the prophecy says, Micah 5.2. And so they, the Magi go, and they stay behind. It doesn't make any sense. This is the coming of their Messiah. They know all the lyrics. This is everything. This is the fulfillment of Scripture. This should have been the most joyous occasion in all of Jerusalem, and they absolutely did not care. It did not even phase them. And so they just sit there. And so the wise men are told by Herod, and he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Herod is lying to them. He is setting them up because he does not want them to realize what he plans to do. They're, they're sort of familiar with Herod. In the political sphere, Herod had kind of gotten a reputation as being ruthless, but he, he was very good at making sure that the people that he killed were assassinated by parties or set up to die, and that so he kind of... 
he was part of it, but he, he could make himself look clean. And so he says, I want to worship too. I want to join you guys. I'm just not going right now. I'll, I'll come later. You tell me where he is, and then I'm going to, I'll be there. I, I got you, right? And so he's, he's setting them up. He's going to use them as an instrument of his destruction. He's going to use them as pawns in his game. They're going to find the child because they have zeal. And then when they come back and report, he can send out his henchmen and take care of business. It, it, it was, in his mind, an excellent way to take care of this. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. Now the star is guiding them. They've come from the east... Right? They were signaled in the east. They're traveling. Now they get there. They find out it's in Bethlehem, but six miles south of Jerusalem. They jump on their horses. The entourage is going, and the star appears. Glory appears, and it takes them. God directs their steps, and it places it right over the child. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. These were God-fearing men. They knew the prophecies were real. And here they have confirmation. We made it. Everything that Daniel said was true. Everything that we were told was true. And if all of that is true, that means that who we have here is the king that is going to rule the world. He is him. He is the Messiah. He belongs to the Jews, but we're here because we got it first. We understood what this means. And so they are overwhelmed it would, have, it would have brought uh, such a public to, to see this fulfillment. It's like when you get an answered prayer. It's like when you're in prayer and you're praying for something and God gives it to you in such a manner that you just, you, you know it's him. Your heart swells and here is the answer to all their prayers, all of their travel. It's the house, right? So Jesus would have been older at this time. He is no longer in the manger. He is now a child. So the word is different. He has grown up slightly. He, they estimate he would have been between a year and two years old at this time. Um, we'll get to why they say that later. But the idea is that the, the Magi come into the house, they see the child and Mary and his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. This had to be quite a sight for Mary. I can't imagine the look on her face when all of these men show up at her place. She had to be like, am I in some kind of trouble here? Because there's this entourage banging on her door. And, and she opens the door and they come in and they don't even, it doesn't even say they really exchanged a whole lot with her. They saw him and they knew who he was. They knew what he was come to do. And the verbiage there means they fell flat. They fell flat. Are our lives like this? Do our lives demonstrate this? We know who he is. We know what he's done. Are our lives this kind of worship where they fall flat in the presence of God? Everything comes in. They worship him, and nobody tells them no. Nobody says, don't worship this guy. He's just a man. Nobody says that throughout the Bible. Every time there was worship being done and it's incorrect, the Bible corrects it. When in the book of Revelation, when John falls down twice, he falls down to worship. The angel says, I'm just an angel. I'm a servant like you. Worship God. The Bible is consistent all the way through that we worship God and hear the Magi fall down and nobody corrects them because they're worshiping God. They are giving praise and homage to him. They open their treasures. They offer him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. They get it. This would have been a lavishing. Understand that where they came from, 
who they were. These were not poor individuals that just scraped up a couple coins to give the king. They came to crown him. This was a coronation. This should have been done by Jerusalem. This should have been done by the Jews. And instead, it's the outsiders that are going to crown Christ. We see it come from the lowest of Jerusalem with the shepherds who were just average individuals. They come and pay him homage. And then the world shows up. At Mary's door, they come in and they fall down on their faces in front of the Lord and they give him everything. Everything worthy of a king. Gold would have been for crowns. It would have been for his kingship. It would have been the idea that he was worthy. It's the, it was one of the most precious possessions that you could have would have been gold. Everything that you would have bought, sold, done, power came with gold. So gold speaks of his kingship. Then we have frankincense. Frankincense was an incense. It was only offered to God in temple worship would have been the idea with incense. And so they're declaring his divinity here, or the Bible is declaring his divinity. And then we have myrrh. Myrrh was used for burial preparation. It smelled decent or better, right? So you didn't have such a stench in it. So they would, they would use myrrh to cover the body before they buried it. And so here Christ has received his three positions as prophet, priest, and king. And they're announcing it to the entire world. And they worshiped him. And the question that we have to ask is, do we get it? Do we get it? Right? Israel completely missed it. They would miss it this time. They would miss it later when Jesus comes in on the donkey. Right, He's coming into Jerusalem and they're calling him a prophet and they're missing who he is. They have no idea. He falls down and weeps and he says the temple's going to be destroyed. And he says, why? Because you did not know the time of your visitation. Because you missed it. You didn't get it. You didn't understand. You had all the information. And here we are as the Christian church today, 2,000 years in hindsight, and we have all of this. And are we missing it? Are we missing it? Are we living in expectation? Are we ready for God to move in our midst? Are we looking forward to him coming again? That's our next step is the return of Christ. He's coming again. It's not over. He reigned before he came to earth. He was a king. He was crowned king when he came to earth. And he's king today. And he's going forward as a ruler. And he's going to return as a king. And we have to be living this. Where is God going to find you? Is God going to find you in service? Or is God going to find you indifferent? There's three ways here that the gospel is received by his church. It's received in violence or anger because God is in, in getting in my way. God is coming and taking away my kingdom from myself and I won't have it. So we have anger. We have indifference. I don't care about what God's doing. I don't care. I know enough. I'm going to go to heaven and I'm just going to kick my feet back until I get there, whatever. We have indifference, a not caring, and then we have the true worshipers of God. And everywhere he moves, they rejoice with great joy. Is your life marked by joy? How was your 2019? How did it go for you? What does your 2020 look like? Will it be a life that's marked by worship and joy of the king as he's coming? Because he's coming again and we look forward to this hope. What does it look like in your life? I didn't share this story last night, but I'm going to share it today. My, my wife is, she's, she has, uh, she's very wise. And she told me that this is appropriate and that I would not, 
I would not be doing her any favors by not sharing it. So in the book, Desiring God by John Piper, he has a story of an individual who gets it and who understands this life. And I want to read it to us because I think it's the heart of the matter here. So this is about a guy named Joseph, and I just want to read this out to us because I think this is going to aid us here. One day, Joseph, who was walking along one of these hot, dirty African roads, met someone who shared the gospel of Jesus Christ with him. Then and there, he accepted Jesus as his Lord and Savior. The power of the Spirit began transforming his life. He was filled with such excitement and joy that the first thing he wanted to do was return to his own village and share that same good news with the members of his local tribe. Joseph began going from door to door, telling everyone he met about the cross of Jesus and the salvation it offered, expecting to see their faces light up the way his had. To his amazement, the villagers not only didn't care, they became violent. The men of the village seized him and held him to the ground, while the women beat him with strands of barbed wire. He was dragged from the village and left to die alone in the bush. Joseph somehow managed to crawl to a water hole. And there, after days of passing in and out of consciousness, he found the strength to get up. And he wondered about the hostile reception he had received from his people. He had known all of his life from the people he had known all his life. He decided he must have left something out or told the story of Jesus incorrectly. After rehearsing the message he had first learned, he decided to go back and share his faith once more. Joseph limped into the circle of huts and began to proclaim Jesus. He died for you so that you might find forgiveness and come to know the living God. He pleaded. Again he was grabbed by the men of the village and held by the women that beat him, reopening the wounds that had just begun to heal. Once more they dragged him from his unconsciousness from himself to the village and he was left to die. To have survived the first beating was truly remarkable. To live through the second was a miracle. Again, days later, Joseph awoke in the wilderness, bruised, scarred, and determined to go back. He returned to the small village, and this time, they attacked him before he had a chance to open his mouth. As they flogged him for the third and probably the last time, he again spoke to them of Jesus Christ the Lord before he passed out. The last thing he saw was that of the woman who were beating him. They had begun to weep. This time, he awoke in his own bed. The ones who had so severely beaten him were now trying to save his life and nurse him back to health because the entire village had come to Christ. When we get it, when we live for him, will you today live for him and change this world? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that it changes us. I thank you that it gives us zeal. Send us, Father. Renew in us a clean heart and a clear conscience and send us forth to proclaim your word that we know who you are and we know what you've done. Have our lives be demonstrated and marked by sacrificial love for you and what you've given us. I thank you, Father, for this church and I thank you for everything you've given to us in this place. I pray that you would bless everyone here and that they would be safe in their weeks and their travels and that you would transform this whole place by the power of your gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you this day. Well, thanks again for listening. And to learn more about how you can connect with Bethel Community Church, 
check out our website at islandbethelchurch.com or join us for a service Saturday night at 6 or Sunday morning at 1045. Hope to see you soon. God bless you.